Do you want to make it in Hollywood? Do you dream of making it in the movie business? Get out of the dream zone and into your reality. I can show you how. Angela White is an executive filmmaker, entrepreneur, producer, talent manager, and the founder of the successful production company, Silver Lining Entertainment, LLC. She knows what it takes to break into show business, transforming lives, guiding careers, and making stars are just as much of a passion for her as making movies. She wants to be the bridge that takes you from where you are to wherever you want to go in the film industry. She's here to prove that your dreams are attainable and to guide you on the road to achieving them. Hollywood doesn't have to be a far-fetched fairy tale unless you allow it to be. She's committed to empowering dreamers through education, innovation, and motivation. Through an atmosphere where your potential for success in film can be harnessed, she'll help bring your inner greatness and true stardom to the forefront. You no longer have to just watch the movies. Now you can make the movies, be in the movies, and sell the movies. Breaking into show business is finally at your fingertips. So when you're ready to start the next part of your life, go to www.missangelawhite.com for more details and information on upcoming seminars. That website address again is www.missangelawhite.com. Start your future today. Hey, it's Ralph Harris, and you're listening to A View from the Stoop. Sit back, enjoy yourself. Hopefully, you learn something. It'll be funny, y'all. Welcome back, family. This week's guest is someone that we at the Brownstone have been watching since we were kids. Ralph Harris is one of the funniest comedians of his generation, and we are so happy that he blessed us with his presence. The conversation we had with Ralph about his beginnings, the highs and lows of his multi-decade career, and his views on how comedy has changed will make you laugh and look at the entertainment business in a way that you may not have before. We're incredibly excited about this one, and we couldn't be prouder to welcome Ralph to the family. Check this one out, and let us know what you think on Instagram, Facebook, SoundCloud, and on our website. Family, we know you're going to enjoy this one. Let's go. So, I think um, the first time I ever saw you on TV was on your um, on our own. But then I remember seeing <laughs> you on Last Comic Standing, and I got to tell you, well, Last Comic, Last Comic was bigger. You know, first, uh, I mean, Last Comic came in '07. Yeah. On our own was you. I don't know. You, you might have been a little guy. <laughs> you know? so, hey, I ain't putting so, my age out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. All right. Yeah, I'm, All right. I'm old enough to be president. That's what we're going to leave that at. Hey, man, that's what I'm talking about. Hey, I might be a better president <laughs> yeah. than some, so we're just going to leave that there, yeah, too. Right? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, right. Hey, last man. Comic Standing. You was last, amazing last on comic. Last Comic Standing. You were amazing you know what? on it, I, I I had a ball during that show, man. And uh, the funny thing is Lavelle Crawford, hey, Lavelle Crawford and I, were were what became fast friends during that process and Lavelle was one of the people that you know he he kind of was letting everybody know he said look y'all could challenge him if you want to but Ralph Harris knows what he's doing so y'all go go ahead and <laughs> you know keep messing with that man but what's going to happen is he's got he's got material for days mm. he got and he was right i got material for days and I'm like, y'all can challenge me if you want to. 
you know, but let me go back a couple of steps. I didn't really want to do it. Like they came to me for five years straight asking me to enter the competition. And I just felt like I'm from a different era and comedy being so subjective, Mm -hmm. we shouldn't have to compete for an audience for it. It should just be something that we can do because we love doing it. And if people like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't, you know? And, uh, and it, and, it, and it seems like that should have been enough, but uh, in the world of exposure and needing to do things for exposure, you know, you kind of have to jump in. So mm-hmm. I jumped in, and at the time I was, you know, in a relationship with somebody who we sat down long and hard and talked about it because it wasn't just going to be me in a competition. I was really going to have to sort of include myself, but also... It was going to take the focus and time from a relationship that I was trying to nurture at the time. Okay. So fortunately I had a, a partner who, who had known me for over 20 years and I could literally sit down and talk to her and say, Hey, you know, they've been asking me to do this thing and I really don't want any parts of it. So, you know, what do you think? And, and her thing was, you know, you got to figure out why you're doing it. And I said, well, I would be doing it for exposure. She said, say no more. Mm -hmm. She said, if you're doing it for exposure, it doesn't matter if to them it's a competition and everybody wants to win. You're doing it for what you're doing it for. And because the TV roles and things like that, the really good stuff is so few and far between, I needed to, you know, jump in and and put my to put my my uh, qualifications in the in the hat Mm -hmm. because I've been watching it for several years. And so I jumped in, but, uh, but getting into it was like, I really don't want to be looking silly on in some doggone house or something like that, (laughs) where it looks like we're bickering over who got, who ate the last piece of bread, you know, but I just, I thought that was cheap and cheesy. Mm. However, they were going, they were doing a different little concept at the time. And I was like, Oh, I can have some fun with this. So I jumped in the hat and, uh, it, it was fun. And it gave me a chance to really, really be exposed. You know, just like you were saying a minute ago, you saw me and you, you know, you enjoyed what I did. So, well, I'll be honest. I had, um, I had avoided the show initially because, uh, like mm-hmm. you said, I mean, reality TV can go any, any which way. And mm-hmm. the only reason I tuned in is because I was flipping by and I recognized your face and it had mm-hmm. me pause up. And then I said, well, uh, Le- man, murdered that name, Lavelle. Yeah. And it just, yeah. you know, the hook caught me. And if you hadn't stayed right. for a while, I probably would never watch the show again. Right. So, man. Like, okay. Nah, uh, well, I'm yeah. saying, you know. That's a, that's a compliment, man. Hey, look, I we, we watch that. things based on familiarity, and there you were. Right. Right. Well, I appreciate that. So, it, for me, I needed I needed it to, what just what you said, and even though you're telling me this more than 10 years after I did, you know, I did that show 10 years ago now. In 07. Mm-hmm. And because of what you're telling me now means that I made the right choice. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that out even today, that I made the right choice for the exposure and for people to see me who hadn't seen me in a while or weren't familiar with me and needed to be. So, you know, good stuff. But go ahead. I'm sorry. So, I, I'm but, long-winded. You got you to gotta butt in. Hey, look, man, this, <laughs> this is a conversation. We are talking. So oh, okay. <laughs> do what you got to okay, do. Cool. 
cool, uh, cool, but cool. I, I want to go back. Um, let's let's go not to the beginning. I'm not asking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's not, let's start. No, no, no. Let's start at when you first recognized that you had a talent for making people laugh. Uh, you know, as most black families anyway. Mm. Um, you when we you know it's it, when you ain't got much. You your storytelling is the entertainment. You know, I mean, outside of listening to music. You know, storytelling is the entertainment. And my mother was one of the premier storytellers in my family during a family get-together. And I always looked at my mother as a kid thinking, God, I would love to go into a room and do to the room what this lady can do to the room. God, she just, she makes everybody just want to sit back and hear her from start to finish. And I don't know how to do that. And so... I would always, we would get to my grandmother's house and it would always be, I would be, we'd be standing in the, in the vestibule. Now, I don't know if you know that. Cause I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I ain't no, I ain't no youngster like I was, but we would stand in the little vestibule and, and I could see through the bevel glass of my grandmother's house, the, the people sitting in the living room and it always would seem like the party hadn't started. And it was, I was like, God, but I would watch my mom seemingly get herself together to enter the room and set it ablaze. And my mother without fail would walk in the room and might say something like, uh-huh, it's party started now. Let's do it. You know, or just whatever, something silly, you know, and, and everything would change. And from the time we walked in to the time we left, you could hear the little conversations, the little remarks about your mom. And it was always positive. And it was always like, God, you know, everything got better when she showed up. And so I said, man, I sure would love to be able to do that. But I also come from an era and time where the kids used to get this little speech before we walked into a room with adults. is Speak when you spoke to, stay out of grown folks' business, keep your mouth shut, or get slapped. And so... I used to so also get, don't touch warnings, nothing. Don't touch, right, don't touch, well, you better not touch them. My grandmother <laughs> take care of you. You touch them. My grandmother, come, she she lived in the walls, I think, because as soon as you did something, she would come out of them walls, man, I swear. And it was like, you would hear her voice saying, uh-huh, didn't I tell you? And then the next thing you know, before she could get tell you out of her mouth, it was, you get popped in the, in the lip, you know? So uh, I was like, hmm. With the so extra long arm, like how were their arms that long? And I would listen to all of that stuff thinking, man, I would love to do that. But to me, comedians were all 50 years old. They were all old, old, old men. So I said, man, I can't, ain't nobody my age, so I guess I got to wait till I'm 50. And then Eddie Murphy showed up when I was in high school. And a friend of mine named Bill Woodward, 
he would always talk about Eddie Murphy in band practice. And he was like, yo, y'all got to see this dude, Eddie Murphy. And I kept hearing his name. And then the thing that rung for me is Bill Woodward one day said, man, Saturday, did y'all see Eddie Murphy doing Buckwheat on, I said, Buckwheat, that's one of my favorite little rascal characters. What y'all talking about? So when I, I decided to tune in to Saturday Night Live and the crazy thing about Saturday Night Live for me was when the band came on, I would always fall asleep because mm-hmm. it would always be a band that I kind of knew, but I really didn't follow that music. You know, uh, 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 you know, just just not not say a white band, but it'd be some music that I just don't know. So I fall asleep because not only is it 1230 at night, it's just like I don't really I don't like that music. And so but man, Eddie Murphy, the night that I stayed awake, Eddie Murphy did. Not only did he do Buckley, he did Mr. Rogers. And so now he he knocking on two doors of stuff that I used to watch growing up. And I was like, "Uh oh, uh oh, this is right up my alley. And I fell in love with the idea that somebody who was only a few years older than me could captivate people the way this dude did. And I was hooked. I was hooked from there. It was, it was all she wrote. And I was like, wow, where do I sign up? So at the time I'm about 17 years old, 16. And, uh, and on my last year of high school and just figuring, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get out. I hadn't take my, taken my SATs because I didn't, frankly, I didn't know about SATs and I didn't know the importance of it because mm-hmm. my father was a blue collar dude. And, you know, you, you, you know, you were going to get a job when you got out of high school. You wasn't going to, you know, go do some dream job. You were going to get a job, a real hard job. And so, when I said, man, I want to do this comedy thing, there was nobody to really relate in my family. So I kind of put it on the back burner in my mind and went in the Army. But before, right before I left for basic training, my mom took me to see Eddie Murphy perform live at a, in the suburbs at a theater outside of Philadelphia. And I knew his act word for word by the time uh, I saw him. And the next day, I had to go away for basic training. And, uh, and, it, and when I came home uh, from basic training, it was like, man, I don't, I don't know if I want to be in the military for 30 years because I can't do this comedy thing in the military. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I got a couple of odd men jobs while I was also in the reserves. And then um, some people that I knew took me to see right before my 20th birthday, took me to see um, a comedy show at a local uh, comedy club. It was an open mic night. And, uh, you know, I was like, we got a comedy club in Philly? Not only that, I worked just about five or six blocks away from it. You know, so I was like, wait a minute. That's in <laughs> Philly? So, so they took me because they had done that kind of stuff all the time. And the reason why they took me is because around the job, I was always reciting Eddie Murphy's material. So they were like, yo, why don't we, why don't we take him to, for his birthday? So they took me, I go see this show and man, it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. And all I wanted to know when it was over is where do I sign up to do this next week? Cause, and the funny thing is my thinking when I was watching the show is these people are not funny. How can this many people be performing and not be funny? Because to me, the funniest thing I've been seeing is, 
you know, Cosby and Pryor and Eddie Murphy and Red Fox and uh, Bob Newhart. That's that's the funny. But none of these guys were funny to me. And so I was getting my little act ready for the next week when I was going to sign up. And I, uh, I, I got my Eddie Murphy routine ready because I didn't know you weren't supposed to do other people's material. So, oh, so, no. So, so, man, I was I had his act down, even down to the little the little sound gestures he would make in between the joke, like uh, uh, whatever it was, I had it. And so the material that I decided to do was the stuff he did about getting hit by a car. And the dude gets hit by a car on Broadway and, you know, and all of that kind of, man, I did that thing so, so good that mm. the 40 people that came to see me plus the regular audience gave me a standing ovation. <laughs> and then the owner of the club goes on. He says, ladies and gentlemen, that was Ralph Harris. They never interrupted me during the set. Mm. But when the set was over, he made a point to tell the audience, ladies and gentlemen, the reason why that was so good to you is because you may have seen it before. It belongs <laughs> to a Mr. Eddie Murphy, if any of you know it. Now, I, I'm so in my euphoric state of mind, I don't care what you say. I thought when he said it, yeah, I know, right? I know, right? And I did it just like he does it, right? See, because my family was used to hearing me do the Eddie Murphy. As a matter of fact, whenever we got together, they were like, hey, do the Eddie Murphy. Mm. You know, it was like it was like a trick. Do the Eddie Murphy. So I even did his laugh. I was, <laughs> man, I had it all. And so uh, I did that for about four weeks until the owner wouldn't let me go on stage no more until I came back with my own material. And I came back after about a week. I, I came back and I did Bill Cosby. Hey, <laughs> 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 wait, sent me away again. I came back and did Richard Pryor. Man, and then, and then, and then when he, yep, I did it exactly in that order. And then when he sent me away again, and he pulled me aside after when he when he told the audience that I was stealing material, and he pulled me aside and he said, "Hey, listen, what you got to do is go and come up with material that is represents you. It's it's not stolen. It's not you know you lifting it from so." I said, "I didn't steal it. I said I don't understand why the other guys don't do it too." I said, <laughs> I said the stuff I said I said the stuff they do is corny. And he said, Yeah, but it's theirs. And I was like, What? What do you mean it's theirs? And so I uh from from there I just decided to, you know, um try to write and talk about the, the things that I knew, like uh, you know, leaving gum in the butter tray because I got a lot of siblings. Mm. And my mother would always make us throw a, grand, a really good new piece of gum away in the middle of the night. Like, come on, time for you to go to bed. So take that gum out your mouth. You know, things like that. Take the gum out your mouth, go to bed. And so I would take the gum out, but i put it in the butter tray and wake up the next morning. And my sister or my brother's eating my brand new piece of bubble yum. And I hated it. I hated it. That was like, so I talked about that. And I talked about stories that my grandfather would tell me that nobody could understand but me. It was like, you know, Ralph, why are you telling these old, old stories? But the truth of the matter is, for me, it was like, this story ain't old. I, I know this story like it's my story. Mm -hmm. And so I just, that, that was my first material. So do you Doing tell the material that, go ahead. You tell the joke for, for you or you tell the joke for the audience? You're trying to make yourself you laugh? Know, 
when I'm on stage, it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have a saying, and I've been saying it for years. I say, come and laugh with me. Okay. And I tell people that all the time. I say that online. Come and laugh with me. Because the comics that I love also got a kick out of what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And I used to love it because I say, but damn, how could I not have a good time if he's having a good time just saying it? <laughs> so I did. You know, so I realized to me, it made more sense for me to do material that felt to me like, you know, it was it was a fun time had by all, even me included. Mm. And so that's what I that's what that's the way I see it. I'm going to do material. If it don't make me laugh, it ain't going to make nobody laugh. Right. So there you go. And um, and it's all it's been that way from from the start. You know, I'm going to do this material. And I believe that if it makes me laugh, it's going to make you laugh. There's a lot of comedians that perform and they feel like if they're smarter than the audience, then they get, uh, you know, then they're going to have it, you know, it be a certain thing. And it's like, nah, man, you don't, you don't want to make it feel like or act like they're stupid. They ain't stupid. If anything, they came to see a really good show and be engaged. But if you make if you're trying to make them feel like you got the one up on them and they ain't smart enough, you ain't gonna connect. That's not how I was raised in the comedy world. So I stayed with what I know. And this if it's funny to me first, then let's go. I'm sorry, man. I told you I could get on the road. So No, nah, you fine. Well so go ahead. After you started getting your own material together, what was the next step? Like, did you hit the road or so, you found more shows? This to do? is the crazy thing. This is a really crazy thing. The guys in Philly were all content with being um, like going to the comedy club and then, you know, just doing it week after week after week and, and, and doing open mic nights. However, my blue collar father was a hardworking man. And even though he and my mom had separated, my father's attitude was, if you're going to waste time with this, then you need to be making money with this. And so I was like, well, well, let me, how do I make money with it? So I would call and got in touch with my high, high school and the people I worked for who took me to the comedy club. They let me perform at their country club. And I did a show one night and they gave me a hundred bucks. And that was the first money I'd ever made. And then I went to a, um, a dinner theater based on doing, I, I, I offered myself up to do the prom at my high school. I, I asked him, I said, look, can I perform at the prom? And then, you know, we go from there and see how that works out. And the guy was like, well, we can't pay you. And I said, don't worry about it. I just want to perform. So me and my brother, along with my standup, me and my brother did it. These two characters, we would do Run DMC. We bought the hats and everything. And we would imitate LL Cool J. Mm-hmm. with the song the radio my radio believe me i like it we did we and so i was like at least these young people would know that so we're gonna do that so anyway i went one day while i was in the middle of my work day to the the dinner not the dinner theater but it was actually a big banquet hall where where um the prom was going to be so i asked the um the uh, lady at the door, I said, uh, at the, you know, it wasn't open yet. And I said, do you mind if I take a look at the facility because I'm supposed to do a show here soon? And she's looking at me like, really? And I said, yeah, I'm supposed to do a show for uh, Germantown High School. So she goes, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm a comedian. 
She says, oh, okay. And she showed me to the room. So I go to the room and take a look at the room. And while I'm in there, you know, I'm kind of surveying the room like, like, you know, for me, I was looking at the room like, wow, I'm getting ready to do a show in this room that seats all these people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I'm excited that way. Well, while I was in there, a gentleman came into the room and uh, he said, hey, how you doing? Shook my hand. He said, my name is Daniel Tavis. He said, and I'm the owner. He says, what do you do? And I said, I'm a comedian and I'm supposed to do um, a show for my high school. And, uh, you know, he says, oh, really? He says, uh, what, comedy, what kind of comedy you do? And I said, well, it's funny comedy. He said, <laughs> he said, he said <laughs> that's how I was, man. It was, you know, I was so naive, mm. but so new and green that to me, it was only one way, uh, only one way to view it. And my thing was, if I'm going to say I'm funny and I'm going to believe I'm funny, then you're going to believe I'm funny and you're going to give me some work. So this dude is saying to me, he says, well, are you, are you, do you have any openings in your schedule? to, you know, maybe take a look at a pl- another place that I own. And this is literally how I'm talking to this man. When he asked that question, I said, you know, I, I don't know, maybe. I said, I, I work a lot. <laughs> I work a lot, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I could probably come by and take a look at it. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to him like that because I'm thinking, well, I work during the day. I can't come to your, your place. Mm-hmm. He's thinking, I got a dinner theater and I want you to come at night. So the way I'm talking to him, he's thinking, damn, this dude is really busy. Mm. So he goes, he goes, well, see how your schedule works out. And if you can come and take a look, how's Wednesday at about at about seven o'clock? Now, I said to him, this is what I said after he said that. I said, well, seven o'clock, that's going to be kind of tight because I have a show. I said, however, I'll be there seven on the nose. And what the show was, I was telling him about, it was open mic night <laughs> where they don't pay me nothing. And I didn't want to miss it. So he's talking about, I, I, he said, I said to him, I have a show. So he heard, well, man, this dude is busy. So he says, all right, well, I won't hold you up. So get there if you can about 645. He says, we, we typically start on time. And I want you to take a look at what the Mater D is doing because the guy who normally opens the show left and the Mater D is filling in for him. But I would rather have someone like yourself if you have time. Mm. This is just how this man is talking to me back then. And so I said, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's not a problem. I'll be there. I said, what's the place? He said, it's the Riverfront Dinner Theater. And he said, we, this is what he said. He said, we only have about 500 seats. Only. We only have about 500 seats, he said, but, um, but uh, I think you'll like it. And I said, okay, I'll come and take a look. So I go to the Riverfront Dinner Theater. It's packed. All white people. And they mm. come in to see the play Annie. Okay. And what he wanted was the Mater D to go on stage before the play and say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Riverfront Dinner Theater, blah, 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 blah. And he would just say, do we have any birthdays, bar mitzvahs? Here's the drink of the day. What the owner wanted me to do was five minutes of material and then do that same thing, birthdays, bar mitzvahs, and here's the drink of the day and enjoy the play. He said, and maybe 
if you don't mind, if you could stay around a little while, maybe shake hands when people have the intermission, because I'm sure they'll want to meet you. And I said, oh, you, I said, you want me to hang around? He says, he says, hey, if it doesn't fit in your schedule, I understand. So, <laughs> so, Man. so I did the gig. So, so after that, Mater D does his thing. The guy asked me, he says, do you think you can do it? And I said, I, I can do that. This is easy. And he goes, well, how much are you going to charge me? And I said, I don't know. I just said it just like that. I don't know. Because I don't know what to charge this man. The only time I ever got paid, I got $100 from my old bosses for performing at the country club. So I said, I don't know. And he goes, how about 500 Because you got to do it three times in a week, right? Three nights. So I said, 500 mm. I said, uh, uh, he said, well, that's my budget. He, I, he said, he said, uh, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I really, I don't know if we can go above that. I said, how about this? I said, how about you give me three seventy five? I laugh. I'm laughing because I'm thinking it as I, I literally told that man to give me less money. And he says, he says, why can't he said, are you not going to be able to do one of the night? And I said, I said, no, I can do all of them, but I want to, I want to do the first one first and you see how you like it. And that's a fair deal. And I think we'll go from there. He don't know. I'm sweating. Right. I'm thinking he's going to punch me in my face, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or kick me out of his business. And he don't know. I only got five minutes of material and I'm going to do the Eddie Murphy. You don't have no ice cream. You, Cause I figured that's clean enough. Bruh. I used to get a standing ovation doing that Eddie Murphy, you don't have no ice cream material mm. in front of that audience. And, and you was the thought that I was Eddie Murphy. All of the people knew it. All of the kids loved it because it was me being a sassy kid. You don't have no ice cream. You didn't get no. And then when I did the little thing with kiss it up to God, mm-hmm. they, they, loved it and the kids would line up for my autograph and this is what happened the same club where i used to be worried about going on for open mic night Mm -hmm. the tuxedos that the dinner theater got made for me custom made i didn't have enough time to change so one night i go over to the uh, the open mic night straight from the dinner theater and i still got my tux on and the guy goes what are you doing and he starts to joke about me making fun of me and I said, well, you know, I just came from work. And he says, work? Where, where are you working? He said, what, comedy? And I said, yeah, I'm doing stand-up at the uh, Riverfront Dinner Theater. He said, the Riverfront Dinner Theater? That's 500 seats. He says, are you getting paid? I said, yeah. He says, how long have you been doing that? I said, about two weeks. And he goes, well, do you want to go on? I said, well, I didn't pick a number. He said, you're working. You don't need to pick a number anymore. And I said, huh? He says, you can go on whenever you get here. And that changed everything for me. So six months into doing stand-up, I literally was making money and getting better spots. And I never looked back. I felt like I'm supposed to do this. This is working. And here we go. So, you know, it, it just kind of took off from there. How long between the, that after that six months to when you made the trip out to L.A.? I got, I, th- that was in, uh, that was eight eighty five when I started. 
and I started going to L.A. in 89. Okay. And the first time I got to Stand Up Spotlight, and Rosie O'Donnell was the host at the time. And so I did Stand Up Spotlight, my first gig in L.A. ever. And, uh, and from that, as a matter of fact, I did the first spot at the club I'm working this week, and I'm headlining a club in Pasadena called The Ice House. And I did that spot, and then from there I went on to do another spot at an improv in Santa Monica, and I ended up with agents that first time I ever performed at that club. So my very my second show in L.A., I had agents. And then, because uh, I was a new face, and then I ended up with a deal with uh, Lorimar Television, which was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. And uh, I thought everybody was hustling and getting the same stuff that I was getting. I literally did. But I didn't know that the strides that I was making and the things that were happening for me were very rare. And it was only happening to me. You know? So, there you go. 89. And then it was 93... I ended up doing a, a guest role, guest starring role on Seinfeld, and then and then Living Single hired me simply on the strength that I was on Seinfeld. And the next thing I did, um, I did Arsenio. Well, I did Arsenio in 1992, and um, the tape from Arsenio, my agent sent it to ABC, and ABC saw it, and I was doing the old man character that I do on stage, and ABC was trying to do a show that was similar to Mrs. Doubtfire with the Smollett family mm -hmm. because uh, at the time Suzanne DePass was managing them and trying to figure out a deal that would allow all of those kids from that family to be on the same show. But they needed a hook. And so something similar to Mrs. Doubtfire, which, where the comedy is played because the oldest brother would do whatever it took for the family not to be split up mm -hmm. because our parents passed away. And, uh, and that was it. And, and and that's when everything took off. Was there a moment where you thought that this is it? I'm I'm going to be the next huge star, or did you always know it was a Not, grind? Well, it's I knew it was a grind because in every step of the way, you know, I, I lived in New York first. I went from Philly to New York, and I got really good in New York. And then when I moved to L.A., I had to kind of work my way up again. But the problem is, I mean, not the problem, but the thing you realize. It's just when you think you're the hot thing, Damon Wayans walks in the room. Or just when you think you're the hot thing, Eddie Murphy walks in the room. Just when you think you're hot, Rodney Dangerfield is walking in the room. But the, one of the things that changed it for me was that night when I went on at the Improv, Rodney Dangerfield came into the club, and my agent at the time asked Rodney to stay and watch me. And because Rodney sat there and watched my show, everybody thought that Rodney was looking at me as the next hot talent to put on his comedy specials. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it made everybody take attention, make, uh, you know, pay attention to me and it changed everything. So I didn't think any one thing was it. I feel, felt like every one thing is another step up and another opportunity for you to shine. Similar to me doing last comic standing. It's another chance for people to see you on a wider scale which is so important, you know, and comedy anyway. So what was next after the show? After On Our Own, they offered me the producers, because we did one season, mm -hmm. and ABC at that time 
shows like Friends and you know and and uh, uh, Living Single, uh, you know, grown up shows started to become the thing, and the TGI Friday concept had become an old concept. Even though our numbers were good, the concept was a bit dated, and people weren't watching it the same way, and advertisers weren't buying advertising time the same way. Uh, but the network respected us enough, and the producers, my executive producers, had a lot of respect. And they respected it enough to give us a season. And there's probably other stuff that went on, you know, to make that happen that I don't know about. But as far as I knew, we got a season out of it. And so uh, the next thing I knew, my agent was calling me, telling me that the producers of On Our Own wanted me to come in and take a role on the show Step by Step with Suzanne Summers. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you know, I, I my eyes were on the prize of doing some bigger things and maybe doing some movies and stuff. So that's what my agent was focused on. And truthfully, he may have given me some bad advice because I said to him, should I do it or not? And he basically said, it's paying less than you were making on, on our own. And based on money, I said no. And because I took his advice, I felt like I trusted him because he wrote my, my earlier deal and he took care of me and I, I had a really great deal. So I took a chance on him and, and uh, in hindsight, you know, in 20, it's 2020 and I probably should have taken the role on step by step to keep the wheel rolling. But I stepped back and just let it go. And um, so I waited around. And then the next thing I did was my Comedy Central special in, in uh, 2000. Uh, not my Comedy Central, I'm sorry. I'm, bar- I'm wrong. In 96, HBO approached me to do an HBO half-hour special. And I did that. And and that, that, that gets things a little busy again. And then the next one after that came for Comedy Central in 2000. So, yep. You said something earlier about um, how comedy had changed around you. What's different from when you started to what you're doing now or what you're seeing now? Well, when I when I when I started in comedy, uh, it was still really really important to bring out a diverse audience for everybody to see comedy. And the way that you could you know get those numbers was to be able to be a crossover act. You had to be somebody that was user-friendly. And uh, I wasn't trying to be soft. I wasn't trying to be user-friendly. I wasn't trying to be any of that. I just wanted to get on stage as much as I could and get as much exposure as I could. And so at the time, the guy who was my manager in in the 80s was teaching me to always be prepared to have a set ready for any comedy show and any talk show. So all I knew was be ready for the Apollo, be ready for the Tonight Show, be ready for Arsenio. So I was ready. I was always ready, and I always had a clean set. Well, around the, the mid-'90s, Def Jam showed up. Mm. And Def Jam was taking no, they was taking no prisoners. You know, it's like, we're we, we, we on and popping. So my thing was, well, I'm not I'm kind of a church guy. So I don't know if I really want to do comedy like that because I don't want to embarrass my mom. My mom is in church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. I don't want her to have to defend who I wanted to be as an artist. 
So I stayed away from it. But like I said, hindsight is, man, you should have did Def Jam because Def Jam was where it was. If you really want to get real numbers out to see your show, you want to get on Def Jam. And I and I said no. Even when Martin Lawrence came up to me in the at the uh, comedy store and he said, "Hey man, do the show," and I said, "I don't know, man. It's a lot of cussing on there." Now off stage, I cuss up a storm with the best of them, mm-hmm. but on stage, I was portraying something else. So comedy changed that way. It was in your face. It was brash. It was bold, and my style was still good, but. You know, you can't deny the success of what Def Jam was, and uh, I wasn't on the train. And so I was able to maintain and, and still work a great deal because there's a lot of people that still love comedy in a family-oriented style. Mm-hmm. But I just I just didn't do that. That wasn't normal for me. So there you go. It was uh, what, maybe another, you said, I believe you said it was 10 years after um, the HBO special, when you got Last Comic Standing? Uh, the HBO special, yeah. The HBO special was 96, and Last Comic Standing uh, in 2007, actually. Mm-hmm. They saw me in an audition, and, and it was on and popping. They saw me in April, and by June, July, we were shooting the episodes. Now, were there a lot of people like me who recognized you and 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 said, "Hey, that's that's Ralph. I seen my man do X Y Z. He's on a on a mm-hmm. on a platform now." Like honestly, when I saw you, I thought to myself, "Man, well, one, I'm glad he's still doing it because you were you were hilarious." Right. But two, it was right. like, um, to put it gently, one of us is now Don't on, put it on this stage. Hey, what you gonna say? <laughs> <laughs> Don't put it gently. You know what? I know what you're gonna say. Why is this dude doing a competition? Well, no, no, not even that. I'm saying one of us has gotten onto one of their shows. This, oh, of course, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. But um, now the re- the season before I did the show, Alonzo Bowden, mm-hmm. a brother, had had won the show, but they had canceled the season, so his him winning the show never aired. Wait, what? People just knew he won. That's yeah, crazy. NBC dropped the show. NBC dropped it. And they dropped it off the schedule. So they never showed him winning. Mm. You had to only go to see you had to see it live. But uh but the very next season when they revamped the show and they decided to add some other little facets to it, that was the year they approached me and said, Look, come in audition. We welcome you to audition. And so I was like, All right, let me go and see what's up. Yeah, but um, it was it was one of those things where how, how did I that change things for walked you? Into what well, doing the show? Yeah, did it open new audiences up to you, or yeah, it was the it same opened, audience? It, well, I was uh, yeah, I was I was working already, but it 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 made my work come a a, a bit heavier. You know, financially it got better. Um, people knew me that didn't normally know me. A lot of comedians hated on me that that didn't know me, you know, because they did, they thought my style was this or that. But one thing you do is you don't focus on the naysayers. You just stay with the positive or or not at all. And social media, you know, was really taking off. MySpace had already been around, and Facebook was just starting. 
uh, to catch on. And people were online saying some of the most vile and vulgar things about my stand-up. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Here I am winning these competitions, sending people home. Mm. And y'all going to sit here and, and blast me? Like I don't deserve it? And I paid my dues times over? But I You think that was just people not knowing you? Well, you know, I mean, it was mostly comedians. It wasn't it wasn't comedy lovers. It wasn't comedy fans. It was comedians who would go on those sites. I'm talking about in full force, like major numbers, and go on and say stuff and try to create a public perception based for who they like. You know, like they were really heavy into Amy Schumer. They were really heavy into, you know, the different comedians that way. And I was like, well, that don't make me bad because you like this person. That mean, this just means you don't like my style. You ain't got to like me. Mm. You know, I'm still going to I'm still going to be all right. So, I, Like I said, I didn't focus on who liked me as much as I was focusing on why I'm doing it. And why I was doing it ain't have nothing to do with opinion. Ain't have nothing to do with uh, it really didn't even have anything to do with winning the two hundred fifty thousand dollar prize. It had more to do with uh, whether or not. I can I can get the comedy clubs to give me a little bit more money based on my exposure on this show. And uh, I did. I was successful at that. And then right after the show, we went on a big tour around the country, the top five comedians, and uh, it took off from there. About when after that did you start developing like your one-man uh, show? Or was that already that something you had funny, done? It's funny you ask that. It's funny you ask that. The relationship I was in at the time, when we went on the tour, um, the last comic standing tour of the finalists, I was in that relationship and and she had come out on the road with me to see the show, you know, uh, for a little while. And we were at a mall one day and I had started writing management. Uh, well, it was called North Philly at the time. I had started writing this play about my life in 2003. But I put it down. I, but I would tell everybody, I got this play. I got this one-man show. I'm writing this one-man show. And, and we got into an argument at the mall, me and her. And as soon as, as soon as we got into the hotel room, she slammed the door. And she said, and another thing, stop telling people you got a one-man show if you ain't even going to write it. Man, mm. she busted my face. <laughs> but it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It was the best thing that could have happened to me was for her to charge me with standing up and doing what I was supposed to do. And I wrote, I started writing the show with the assistance of a friend of mine who was kind of showing me how to structure a one man show. And so I started writing a play and, um, no, no, I think I, I started writing it the summer of 2008. And by September of 2008, I was putting it in the theater. I didn't even know back then, just like I was naive when I first started doing stand-up, I didn't know back then you probably should have a producer, you should probably be spending somebody else's money, you should be doing all those things. I didn't know. I thought, I, well, I got money in the bank, let me use my own money. I thought that's how it's supposed to go down. I was always prepared that if I was going to do something, I was willing to foot the bill. Mm -hmm. But that's not how theater is supposed to be. You're supposed to wait until somebody invests so it's that kind of money. And people who know theater, they move your show along. 
Well, my thing was always, you always get taught about ownership of your product. And my thing was, I'm going to own my show. So in order to own it, you got to be ready to pay the bill. And that's what I was doing. Right. And so Managed Boy started out as North Philly, and mm-hmm. then it became Managed Boy after some rewrites with myself and a friend named Stacy McLean, and, uh, and it took off. What was the reception like? The reception was really, really good, actually. I got good reviews from the first time they came. The reviewer for the L.A. Weekly, which is an art, artistic paper with all of the shows and everything to do in L.A., it's, a, it's, like, the, it's like the Village Voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reviewer came to the show, and it was only nine people in the audience. And he gave me a great review. A great reviews, and and I didn't I didn't look back after that. I was like, okay, let's go. And then um, from there, we did the rewrite, and that and they sent another reviewer when we rewrote the show and renamed it, and they gave us a good review again. So it was always good that way. It, it I, I don't know. I was always blessed with with that favor, you know, and be, and because I'm a stickler for for professionalism and things to look good. Right. And so, uh, you know, I, I put everything I had into it. And, um, yeah. What's next? This made me remember. Sir. The next thing is I was, I was just talking to one of my mentors in comedy is a guy named Brad Garrett. Mm-hmm. And he is the, the tall dude that was on Everybody Loves Raymond. Right. The dude that's, he's 6'8". Till so death. he's my big brother. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hey, exactly. Man, he's my criminally underrated. He's my slash mentor. Yep. And, and he's my big brother and, uh, and mentor. And he is trying to, uh, he's paid for me to go to acting school and everything. Like he really puts his money where his mouth is. And so he wants to produce the show, but he's trying to get me to put it on hold right now until I get a, a series or until I book something on television, because he feels the value of the show. I'm not going to get back what I'm putting into it now. I'm going to get more from it when I get more exposure. So let's say, for example, if I got a Tiffany Haddish sort of break, mm-hmm. it would change everything. It would literally change everything. Because in the, in the talent world, in the performance world, you're really only as good as the tickets you can sell. And in this day and time we, we live in comedy clubs, you don't even have to be funny. If you could sell out the room, you could make the big dollars. And so I need to be able to sell out the room. And so uh, that's why he's telling me to wait on the play. So right now, I've just been auditioning for stuff while I'm in town, auditioning for these pilots and doing little roles here and there. I did a role on the TV show The Mayor on ABC, mm-hmm. another show that was a, a fun little show, but it got canceled. And so, you know, <laughs> now it's on Hulu. But my episode is on Hulu. And then I did the Bounce TV show called uh, Grown Folks, which is a good show. Good little funny show. And uh, so I keep on plugging away. Try to do good auditions and, and, and get something. Because you never know, man. That one show could change everything. Do you feel like you've made it? Or will I, you ever you know feel what? like you made, made it? Made it made it to me when I started was becoming a superstar similar to Eddie Murphy, mm-hmm. and Martin Lawrence, and Kevin Hart. It was that, that to me was the, uh, have, uh, considering himself made it. However, when you realize that you had a career that's a 33, span 33 years, and you've been able to do nothing but 
acting and stand up, you made it. Right. You made it. And so I would have to say, yeah, I did. I made it. The thing that I want to do now is complete some other goals. Mm-hmm. And those goals are, you know, they're, they're luxuries in a lot of ways and they're personal. But, but uh, if I could work the rest of my life, getting on stage, paying my bills, sustaining my life, uh, I, I, I'll be fine. You know? Because I sure can't go back to, to trying to go to college and get me a job as no, <laughs> you know? I mean, you could, <laughs> an accountant. You, you, you I mean, I want could, to. But, it's, it, <laughs> but man, I don't even know, I don't even know how to sit in that kind of classroom. Right. It's like, really? A pencil? <laughs> you know, like, what? A test. Now I've gone to school for different things, but it was like I went to UCLA for for uh, screenwriting. You know, mm. to to write scripts, stuff like that. Like I'm always trying to learn, but you know. So, th- like I said, I wrote a quote the other day and I put it on Facebook, and I said, "It's always been to me that Plan B is to make Plan A work." Right. And that's always been that way to me. It's interesting that you said that you wouldn't know how to go back to school. Um, something I saw the other day, speaking of uh, memes, it was water always finds its level. And it's probably you mm-hmm. found what you were supposed to be doing. So there's nothing else for you. Yeah, man. It's a true gift, bro. It's a true gift to be able to, to make people laugh. I can walk into a room and in and, and, and 30 seconds know the level of, of humor for the room so mm-hmm. I know how to start I know exactly what they want to hear and no matter who was on before me I try to find my zone immediately and I, I'm qualified in doing that The, um, you know so I, I'm comfortable in my skin and I'm comfortable doing what I do the only thing is in the world of entertainment every 5 to 10 years you're asked to reinvent yourself because times change mm-hmm. so I've, I've reinvented myself so much you know, at, at at one point, I think the people who retire from my business, they're tired of reinventing. You know, like Eddie Murphy wants to still do stand up. But Eddie Murphy, how, how could he convince you that anything in his life pisses him off? You know, <laughs> true. You know, and, that, and that's pretty much what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Comedy is what pisses you off, even though you got people laughing. It's what pisses you off. Mm hmm. And it's how you tell that story. I think I saw something recently. Um, um, it was a critique of uh, Chris Rock's latest special. And I mm-hmm. think, and even Dave Chappelle's latest stuff. And people weren't, they wanted what he'd done 15 years ago. But the idea is, he's not the same person. They're, they're not the same people. If you were still talking Boy, you about... Mean, you're saying people wanted what... you want, People wanted what Chris Rock did years ago? Yeah, they wanted Chris Rock from Chris 15 Rock. years ago. They want Dave Chappelle yeah. to be what he was on the Chappelle show, but nobody lets you yeah. be somebody different. That's just, that's just it. The, the generations change mm-hmm. every 10 years. And so Dave Chappelle ain't going to give you what he did 10 years ago. He's going to give you who he is now. Mm-hmm. The problem with a lot of us is we... Some of us, and you know comedians who are still doing what they did ten years ago, mm. and if you and then people get that and they complain about that. Right. So you can't please the audience. You pretty much got to do what Prince did. Prince said, "I don't care what you want, 
I'm going to give you this. Mm-hmm. And either you fall in line with what I'm doing or, or you just, you don't have to, you don't have to like it, you know? And uh, I think that comedy has to be that we have to be as selfish with the creative side of the format as we are with hell, using your toothbrush. Mm-hmm. You don't share your toothbrush. Right. So it's the same thing when you when you write that material, that material needs to be for you and what you think it, it should represent. And it's easier as a comic to tell the story of your life and where you currently are. And Chris Rock, I was in New York when he was going through the divorce, the initial stages of it. Uh, and he was broken. His heart was broken. And that was just what, two years ago. So to watch him work it all out and get to the point where he's comfortable telling it on stage. He ain't lying. See, Richard Pryor back in the day was telling us about being on drugs and, and his grandmother running a house with prostitutes. And we listened to all of that. Well, Chris Rock is doing the same thing, but people want to hold him to some standard that is their standard. Mm-hmm. And guess what? You ain't going to take nothing from him because you don't like it. There's a whole lot of people that's going to sit up and say, you know what? He did exactly what you're supposed to do. It's find find that thing in your in your belly that makes you so uncomfortable to say it, but also make it funny at the same time. And he did it. Right. He did it. I you got know? two I questions I mean, how long is... Uh, okay, Sorry, go, ahead. go um, One, we were talking about uh, longevity in the game. You gotta, you can't give away the game. You never can tell everybody everything you've known because some of it has to do with what you've lived. But there's somebody who wants to start and be the next Ralph Harris with a 33 year career, or or be the next whoever. Longevity is something that has some basis in in how hard you've worked. What would you tell them mm-hmm. on, on longevity? Well, and then two, I'll tell you this. I, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Two, is there anything harder than standing in front of a room and making them laugh? Uh, I'll answer the second question first. Um, mm-hmm. Anything harder than standing in, um, to me, because I do it, the harder thing for me would be to go in a boardroom and talk to a whole bunch of people in the corporate world. I have so much respect for people who have jobs where they have to keep the flow of the world going. You know, bank executives, accountants, you know, doctors, nurses, nurses especially. I have so much respect for that because I don't think I could ever do it. Mm-hmm. So it can't, those things can't be diminished because my job looks like it's hard. My mm-hmm. job is easy for me because it's in my blood. You know, so I can't think of anything that is... uh you know, I think they all of those things I just mentioned are on are, are parallel to the, the the toughness or how tough comedy could be to do. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, well, the first question you asked is uh, what would I offer and advice? I I really take seriously this career that has allowed me to to see the world literally, and uh, and has given me so much. And because of the people who who you know, the headliners who have given me advice all the way to Eddie Murphy being there that first time I ever saw him. Um, I studied the business and I, it, it turns my skin when a young comedian coming up now bastardizes 
what I take so seriously by not studying the art form before Kevin Hart, studying the art form before Eddie Murphy, studying the art form before, you know, the queens of comedy, the kings of This thing has been around since I don't know when. We go back to being court jesters for the king. Comedy comes from a long, long line and historic line of people doing it. So it behooves you to find out who they were, what they did, because there's nothing new under the sun. And if you're a, a black comedian, it's the ignorance is for you to think that that's all you need to study. Mm. See, I listened to Bob Newhart. I listened to Jonathan Winters. I listened to Phyllis Diller. I listened to all of them just as much as I listened to everybody else, because you really need to listen to it all and learn it all and learn the techniques. So I tell any young comedian, if you want longevity, find out what the stories were before you, how it was done, and then get to telling your story as fast as you can. Because you, if you're imitating anybody, sometimes you might be the only one to know that you're trying to act like Mike Epps on stage or you're trying to act like Earthquake. You might be the only one knowing it. However, the fact that you know it means that you're cheating. So get to your voice as fast as possible mm. because you can't lose with your voice. So where do you see go. yourself in the next five years? Um, I see myself on a TV series. Mm -hmm. I see myself on a TV series, uh, whether it be drama or comedy, hopefully it's comedy you know, having the time of my life going to work on set. There's nothing like it when you're on a TV series and millions of people are seeing it. But not only that, you're making them happy with what you do. So I see myself there because I work really hard to be a good actor as well as a stand-up. But I see myself there and I see myself and my name being cemented in the world of comedy. Because right now, people act like the only comedians are... Or, or the ones that were on that Def Jam anniversary special. Mm -hmm. But it's a whole lot of us out here fighting a good fight. I've opened the doors for a lot of people who were on that Def Jam special by just doing what I do and doing it well and having a good attitude. So, you know, I see myself cementing my name and making people remember. We have to do this again. Um, there's so much hey, we didn't touch on. <laughs> there's re it really is, and and I, I I truly appreciate you all, and uh, at Brownstone Mag for for giving me the time, and recognizing me, and just re reaching out because, uh, like I said, I, I respect your product, and how you all have always given love to people, and uh, and, and I truly appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you. I mean, there's some people who. There, there's some people out there who may, for some reason, not have heard of you, but they've seen you. They, mm -hmm. they've been part of your work, even if it's just you know on a, a very outside looking in type of level. And right. we have known of you since we were way back looking at the, the ABC lineup. And for right, it's, right. it's surreal for me to be talking to somebody that I've seen on TV right. in one way or another my whole mm -hmm. life. And I'm I'm just happy nah. that you're still doing it. Um in research for this I, I had a chance to see your your uh talking to your girlfriend and about the drapes. 
and man, ah, that's I think the <laughs> best part of comedy is when you can look at it and say, I've had that conversation. All that he's saying is true. Right. And if you right, haven't right. And I, seen that, yeah, look yeah, it up. Yeah. If you're listening to this, just I look it up. You that. owe it to yourself. I, 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 I'm saying I get a lot of that now. All they got to do is YouTube uh, a search Ralph Harris, you know, and, and just anything. Comedy Central special, HBO special, and they'll find my stuff. There's, there's, man, listen, I hope that I have inspired comedians like Eddie Murphy inspired me. I hope that I have made people feel like the dream is possible, um, just like so many did it before me. And uh, all I can do is, while I'm at it, I'm going to keep showing them that I'm going to keep trying to come up with ways to keep myself in this game because I know I have what it takes. So I truly appreciate it. 